Hi there. My name is Subhu Kalpati and welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast that dives into the many facets of organizational culture. I am a learning leadership, culture and organizational development professional. The world of work as we know it is fundamentally transforming. In this podcast, I invite fascinating people from diverse fields to share their unique perspectives on the new world of work. My guest today is Egbert Schramm. Egbert is the group CEO at Hofstede Insights and an established speaker and sparring partner on the topic of how, where and when the culture factor impacts business and organizational operations. He has worked in the field for some two decades now and in over 40 plus countries. Egbert holds various additional roles in organizations such as the Forbes Business Council. He is the chair of the Finnish Dutch Chamber of Commerce and on the Amcham advisory board in Finland. Egbert's style is provocative yet delicate, focused on making a complex topic understandable. In this no holds barred conversation, Egbert and I discuss culture at the societal, national and organizational level, how culture develops, the link between organizational culture and strategy and so much more. Egbert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Great. So, um a great place for us to start this conversation egbert is uh, maybe to go back to where you started uh, I, you know i'd love to know uh, how you started on your journey uh, in this entire field of organization culture uh, of culture in general and specifically you know national culture organization culture and things like that so maybe yeah. before we get into the details of all of that it'll be nice to know a little bit about you uh, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself how you got interested in the field of culture in general um and specifically things like organization culture maybe that's a good place for us to start okay so this is going to be a little bit of a trip like down memory lane um so i studied um in the netherlands at a university called wageningen university it's the only university in the netherlands that is not under the control of the ministry of education but instead at the time under the ministry of uh, agriculture and it was a very very international place um why is that important because that kind of started introducing to me what does it mean to work in international or multicultural working groups that words even when written in the same way can have very different meanings uh, in terms of actions and interpretations uh, and that was when i got introduced to the world of hofstede um so that was way back in the early 2000s then fast forward a few years uh in 2006 i started working for a finnish human capital analytics firm um so basically conducting opinion research conducting satisfaction surveys engagement surveys 360s multi-rater appraisals and the like and we got in touch with a dutch consulting company which was called itim itim institute for training in intercultural management and they had just at that time split into two parts one part focusing on national culture the other part focusing on organizational culture and for us supporting a lot of hr organizations advisories consultancies and functions their approach to culture was so all encompassing kind of providing an ability to not just generate data but generate meaning to connect all of those people data related dots into a consistent picture which we nowadays know as organizational culture so we we 
scope them out as a customer to automate a lot of their thinking. Um, and when I took over as CEO uh, of our organization in the end of 12, 2011, uh, early 2012, that was done in the condition that, hey, this culture stuff is so interesting that I just don't want this only to be a provider relationship. Um, I want to build our organization around this. Um, fast forward a few more years, we changed the name um, from Ethem International to Hofstede Insights uh, to basically do justice to what it is that we do, which is to provide insights into what Hofstede's theoretical approach to culture means in practice. Um, so Hofstede has this legacy of academia um, when it comes to working across borders, but also when it comes to organizational culture. And what we basically did is to translate theory into applicable practice uh, using some of those advanced analytical features that we have. So that's basically how I got into it. You could kind of jokingly say that I bought my way into it. Um, but as such, I've been exposed to the topic of culture since the early 2000s. Very interesting. Thanks for that background, uh, Egbert. I think um, you mentioned very briefly about uh, Geert Hofstede and his, and his work and how he focused uh, a lot on academia. Um, and he's regarded uh, you know, as, as one of uh, the foremost experts or somebody who did early research in the area of, of culture and his, his work is so popular across. Um, could you spend some time um, talking about uh, Geert Hofstede's work um, and how this has inspired uh, your own field or your own kind of field of work at, at Hofstede Insights? Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you go back to, to Hofstede's original work, then we're going back to late 60s, early 70s, when Hofstede did his original work, actually not even looking at culture, but looking at employee satisfaction and engagement uh, amongst something like 110,000 employees uh, within IBM. Um, that kind of led to his groundbreaking books, Cultures, Consequences, and uh, Cultures and Organizations, Software of the Mind with the first one being the more academic, analytical, statistical book, the latter being the more popular uh, book, easier to comprehend. Um, Hofstede basically ended up getting his own chair at Maastricht University in the Netherlands um, and in there started a research um, branch, you could call it, which was called IRIC, Institute for Research and Intercultural Communication. And they started ITIM, the Institute for Training and Intercultural Management as a reflection on a lot of commercial questions that came out from uh, business life. That, hey, this academic this academic concept of culture is super interesting, but what does this really mean for us? How can we use this in business? Um, and what we have basically, since that age and date forward, have done with ETHM initially and then later with Hofstede Insights is all the time, Take the work that Hofstede describes from an academic construct and ask ourselves the question, number one, how do we transmit this meaning, this impact, this importance to business life? And number two, how do we let business life use this in order to do whatever it is that business life does, which is make a profit? Um, and that's kind of like if you, if you 
take the academic part, academic part, and then the application and the distribution between the two. Same way this started an organizational culture from practice. Uh, there was a question on, hey, this intercultural stuff, what does this mean for the way we lead our organizations? And that's where Hofstede initially with a few other researchers in the late 80s did research amongst approximately 20-ish companies equally spread across Denmark and the Netherlands, which are from a national cultural perspective, relatively similar. And again, it's all relative. Uh, and that kind of gave birth to a separate line of business, uh, a different construct, which is about organizational culture. Um, and that's kind of where that uh, story originates. Very interesting. Um, so uh, a kind of a follow-up question, and since you know you you uh, explained how it started for Geert Hofstede also, which is that he, he started in the field of um, employee satisfaction and then that kind of evolved at some point and it became this entire practice about, um, first of all, defining what is culture and then, um, uh, you know, kind of going deeper into the concept on the construct, both on the academic side and on the on the practitioner side, if you may. Um, so let's maybe if you can take a pause and talk a little bit about what is culture, right? So maybe if we uh, if I were to ask you, how would you define something as as abstract as culture um, at, let's say, at, at a national level and also at an organizational level? Um, yeah. Uh, what, yeah, what would your answer be to that? So probably the best paradox is that compare culture with an onion. Um, and the onion basically has multiple layers. And there is that what we see, the outer layers. And there's that what you see when you take layers away. And then there's the core. And the core of culture, whether we talk about national or organizational culture, is where the emotions come out. Um, and if, if you take the bare essence definition of culture, it's about how different groups of people relate differently to different emotions. Um, and... In organizations, this tends to be connected more to the practices. So what are the practices that we build around these beliefs and these emotional preferences? In countries, you can see this in the institutions that countries build, uh, in the behaviors that are uh, pushed into the educational system. Uh, you can see it partially in social policies. Um, so what are the values that social policies really are aimed at influencing? Um, but yeah, in its bare essence, culture is an onion that has multiple layers. And the core is that what makes you cry. And that's basically when emotions come, come up. Uh, that's how I would simplify a very complex issue because that, that's something that a lot of people, especially HR people, and business executives tend to miss, which is that culture is not just a checkbox. It's the context in which an organization lives and breathes. Um, and it, it is more complex than psychology. And just talking about it doesn't do justice to the fact that for psychology, you need a five-year master thesis. And culture is about groups of people. And... If you make the jump to academia, you've got sociology, you've got psychology, culture is social psychology. It's it's about the interaction between the individual and the group. Um, 
and, and that's kind of where we tend to operate. And that is what makes it really fascinating because it, it also means that it impacts everybody, but in different ways. I know that's fascinating. Uh, I like how um, how you kind of uh, use the onion as the metaphor um, and how uh, you said that as you unpeel the onion, you discover more layers of what the culture really is um, and how also you brought in the aspect of emotions um, uh, being at the core of it, right? Um, and it's it's not as simple as it is made out to be. It's, it's a complex entity uh, and therefore it has to be studied at multiple different angles or through multiple different angles. I think that's, Absolutely. that's the point um, that you're essentially making. Um, which is great. So, if I were to um, if I were to ask you a follow up question, Egbert, um, you know, it's it's a great metaphor that you've given. But what would be the differences between, uh, let's say, uh, you know, us studying and working on national culture as a as a concept, vis a vis uh, looking at organizational culture from a business lens, uh, right? So, mm -hmm. what are the similarities and differences that you see uh, in these two uh, kind of constructs? Um, so, I'd say. I'll share the way we typically engage with this in business life. So if you, if you, again, simplify it to the core, there is what we do, and those are our practices, and, and those are, to a larger degree, rational. And we can design practices to be done in a certain way that is called business life or company life or organizational life company and organization will tell you this is what needs to get done and depending on the organization they might also define for you how you are supposed to go about doing what you do the one thing that organizations have less control over so and again that's an important word less control not no control but less control is how you feel about what you do and how you do it and that's national culture. Um, and, and this is something, and again, the, there is a global elite of people that have lived in multiple countries, have worked for multiple nationalities, with multiple nationalities, but that that's so few people. If you look at the world at large, very few people have had the luxury of studying and meeting people from other cultures. So for most people, their world is literally within walking distance. And... That's why, at least until they're like, let's say, 12, 15 years of age. And that's why a lot of the emotional pref preference, they are shaped by the environment in which you grew up. And as an organization, you don't have any impact on that, no matter how big you are, no matter if you're an Apple or a Microsoft or a Tesla or an Armani or any kind of big organization, the richest people on earth, they do not control how nations instill emotions in people through educational practices, through parenting practices. And that doesn't mean that people can't work against their emotional preferences, because again, that is relatively easily to manipulate, stimulate, orchestrate, pay people enough, give them enough status, give them enough learning, and anybody will work against their values if they need to for two, three years. And after that, the pain typically becomes too big and people move on to a place where they seek for a better alignment through these layers. So simplifying it to the core, there is what we do. That's organizational culture. There is how we do it. That is also partially organizational culture, already partially national culture. And then there is how we feel about that. And that is national culture.
Very interesting. I like the layering again of how, uh, you know, the, the organizational culture and national culture intersect um, while at the same time talking about how, how they could be dissimilar also and how we need to think about something like this. Uh, fascinating. Thanks, Egbert, for sharing that. Um, okay, so moving on, Egbert, um, uh, let's, uh, in that same realm, and if I were to summarize what we've spoken so far, at least the last question that you, uh, that we spoke about, um, is that, uh, you know, there are some similarities in the way that we perceive and also we live uh, our own values that we bring to the table uh, in an organizational cultural setup. Uh, and a lot of those values are also defined in the way uh, in who we are as a person. Uh, and that kind of is, is ingrained in us as, as we have grown up in the national milieu that we are a part of or the culture that we are part of. And that so it kind of defines who we are as a person. Uh, but the moment you get into an organizational setup, it has its own set of values and tendencies um, that manifest, um, right? And therefore, you need to figure out whether it works for you or not. And uh, it's it's also great that you're making that link between, uh, you know, why someone stays uh, in, in an organization vis-a-vis uh, -vis why someone might leave and how that connects to one's uh, values and preferences, which could be influenced by national culture, right? So that was a fascinating insight while I was, uh, you know, hearing you uh, answer the last questions. Thanks for that. Um, so I'm going to kind of continue our conversation, Egbert, here is uh, by asking you the question about how does organizational culture develop, right? So is that something that happens uh, on its own? What What is it that people or even leaders play a part? What's their role? Uh, and what really contributes uh, to the culture of an organization? Yeah. So first of all, culture happens automatically when groups of people come together. So whether or not you want it, it's going to happen because this is what people do. And irrespective of organizational culture, national culture, professional culture, educational culture, um, we're all humans. And, and humans are social, social beings. Um, and therefore, culture is defined by what happens when people come together. Therefore, I earlier used those words of manipulate, stimulate, orchestrate. And these have very strong emotional connections to it. Because the moment people hear the word manipulate, people think, ah, that's bad. But it can also be seen as stimulate. You want to stimulate a certain way of working. And the fact that you're using particular techniques to do that, that is simply manipulation. The point is, there are emotions. And emotions in groups of people need to be balanced because organizations all across the world, and irrespective of the business area or professional field they find themselves in, are dealing with six basic dilemmas. How do we work effectively? What makes us to move? Is that ourselves? Is that people on the outside? How do we ensure or enforce discipline? Where should loyalty lie? How approachable do we need to be? And how do we really feel about people? Do we trust them to work hard or do we need to push them? To work hard and maybe take their passports away because we can't trust them otherwise to work hard uh, and that unfortunately is still a practice that happens in certain countries so the fact is these are the six dilemmas that you as a manager as an owner as a leader have to balance with that what you need to get done as an organization and that also means that unlike typically anglo-saxon 
tax and management philosophies like to want us or want us to believe that there is a particular culture for a particular strategy. That is nonsense because context matters. So you asked, what is the role that leaders play? Well, walk the talk. I can give you a concrete example. Let's say that you have a leadership competency, such as active listening. And let's say people rate a boss very high on that skill or competency of active listening. But then what if the boss is never available? The boss has the competency, but does the boss use the competency? Mm. So it's active behavior. What is it that bosses, leaders, managers, owners, people that should set the tone? What is it that they make time available for? Because the only scarcity that anybody has is time. We cannot create time. If we're, la- if we're lacking money, we, we create money. That's called quantitative easing. Uh, if we lack innovation, we fire a few people, we hire a few people, and we file some patents, and we have innovation. But time is scarce. So the only thing that leaders can actively use to build a certain culture is to be very wise in terms of what do we allocate our time to. Mm. Interesting. So um, you're making the point that one needs to consciously allocate this time uh, to be able to uh, define and craft consciously what what the culture should be and therefore walk the talk essentially is, is what you're saying which is which is great and and thanks yeah. for also noting down those six points which are uh, essential uh, right for anyone to uh, to think about culture so that's that's great as well um, Egbert um, so you you touched upon a little bit on this topic of um, strategy right and which is also my next question which i wanted to uh, you know speak to you about is that what's the link between organizational culture and strategy what what really comes first and can you walk us through that yeah i'd say neither one comes first first comes the question of what is it that you get paid for as a company uh, are you getting paid for a product a service an experience or something else um, and then you build a strategy around that what you get paid for um, so are we going to go with a subscription-based model, with a license model, with a one-off purchase model, with whatever model that you have, a business model, a strategy around it, what are your channels, etc. And ideally, those are informed by the culture that you have inside an organization or that you want to have inside an organization. And I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, earlier this year, we worked with a fairly known international call it sourcing company and their business model is basically selling subscriptions but they are employing highly educated individuals and what tends to happen with people that are highly educated they get bored quite easily especially if their business is selling subscriptions so they started selling additional services which were not priced into the business model so you get less efficiency because people are starting to sell stuff that you haven't budgeted time for. So what comes first? It's it's maybe the question is more like, where are they connected? They are connected in the way you go about reaching a particular goal. 
And that goal and how you go about reaching that should be informed amongst others by what is the mental capacity that you have inside your organizations? How easy is it to find people, to retain people, to educate people? Um, what's the labor market like, basically? That should also inform your your cultural choices and maybe even strategic choices. Um, what's the market situation? So these these tend to be more strategic questions, and then you link that back to what are the particular ways people inside your organizations uh, have been raised in a way to behave. Um, and it goes back to this famous statement of culture eats strategy for breakfast, operational excellence for lunch, and something else for dinner which can lead to a misperception that everything is about culture, where my statement would be that, well, it is and it isn't. Meaning culture is not the thing that you sell unless you're Hofstede Insights. Um, culture is what helps you as an organization to sell whatever it is that you are trying to sell. And that's where organizations need to be quite mindful in terms of that, that core question what are you getting paid for? And typically there's there's three options. It is either a physical product, it is a mental service, or then it is an experience. And the answer, it doesn't matter what the answer is. The answer should just be synonymous inside a management team because if part of the management team thinks we're selling a product and the other part thinks we're selling a service, then the KPIs, the OPRs that you're going to put in place will be substantially different and you start lacking consistency. And that's basically where you could call the breakdown starts taking place. It starts at the top. The answers are less important than consistency in the answer. Understood. So um, yeah, I think what you're essentially saying is that, uh, you know, figure out what is it that you're selling, what your business model is, uh, and then work out your strategy around that uh, and be consistent in whatever it is that you're doing out in the market. Um, and here is a key point: is that your your culture needs to align to that strategy, whatever it may be. Uh, it can't be it can't be up in the air. You can't be doing something, uh, making something, and then you know saying that your culture is something uh, else altogether, right? And in which case there will be an incongruence, or uh, you know, in the example that you gave, is that yeah. people might feel disconnected with what we do because we are saying something else, and we're we're literally doing um, you know uh, another thing to be able to please in in the in the example that you gave to be able to please our people so that they stay back with the organization um, there, there's this there's this synonym basically with, with an engine uh, and although of course we're all moving to electric cars uh, there's still some that are using the old-fashioned engine um, <laughs> engines need oil to run your business is the engine block it is something typically something that is physical it'll run if you put in the wrong oil it just might not go as fast as it could go, and it might not last as long as it could last. If your business strategy is about building a company or an engine that has maximum performance for a short amount of time, because your goal is to win a race, to sell a company within three years, you need a very, very different culture, different oil, than when your goal is to last in which case you need 
to my understanding of oils, oils with higher viscosity, so they lubricate the engine better, so the engine will last longer, but as a trade-off, will go slower. And that is basically what culture is. You can have an engine without the oil or the wrong oil, but it won't necessarily be doing very much. You can have an oil without engine, but that's also kind of useless. So you kind of need the two. And the way you need to fine tune it depends on what actually is it that you want to do. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. Thanks for that metaphor, Egbert. Um, it, it makes it very real. Uh, and tangible, so to speak, uh, to be able to understand this concept of, you know, strategy, culture, organization, where does it all fit in? Uh, that's great. Um, I want to touch upon a little, uh, a little bit on this topic of, uh, you know, which, which I think you also touched upon in the previous question and the one before that, which is the entire aspect of time, uh, right? And the, the paradox here is that a lot of leaders today, at least, understand, um, you know, strategy is important, business models are important, a lot of time, energy, effort is spent on that but very little time on the lubrication or ensuring that the right oil goes in uh, to you know to maintain the health of the engine for the long term uh, which is what we are talking about here which is culture um, so because you have you've been doing this for a while now um, what what do you think is symptomatic of this problem right why is it that leaders do not spend uh, enough time thinking very consciously about uh, culture um, as much as they do uh, as as things like strategy or business models and things like that I'd say that the problem is twofold. On the one hand, leaders who downsource anything people-related to HR and therefore making the mistake to think that culture is only about people. Mm -hmm. And again, there, of course, my answer will be it is and it isn't. Um, that's one end of the So it's, it's business leaders not taking ownership, basically being cowards when it comes to owning the core essence of their organization. It, there is no other excuse for business leaders not to take it serious because research enough has, found, has pointed out that if you do invest in culture, your organization will be, let's say, 35% more profitable, will reach its growth targets 400% faster. And this is, again, like famous research uh, universities pinpointing this out. Uh, so there's enough of that evidence that, yes, culture actually has a significant economic impact on either the performance or then, therefore, the economic valuation of a company. And the fact that leaders don't own up to this and coward their way out because it forces them into difficult decisions to which they might not know the answer mm. is one very core element. The other element is HR. And HR's failure to understand how to connect the people component to business performance and economic valuation and instead choose to check the box of, yes, we had a fantastic keynote speaker on culture. Now we're done and we can all go back to business as usual. So it's a failure of both of the stakeholders, ownership because of whatever reason, being afraid to make difficult choices when it comes to, among others, walking the talk. And secondly, HR for failing to understand that HR should be about groups of people, meaning culture, not necessarily only about the individuals concerned. But this is just my two decades worth of observation. <laughs> 
Yes, and it's quite insightful, I must say. Uh, and you've you've hit the nail on the head. I think the ownership lies on on both sides of the equation. It's not just leadership or or HR, but then people kind of working together and the leadership working together to make space uh, and discussing and owning the culture, right? So, uh, which I think is a perfect segue, Egbert, into my next question, um, which is, uh, you know, there is, and you've you've written about it, uh, you know, for Hofstede Insights, which is that there is uh, there's something that you talk about is the organic approach to organizational culture, and there is an active approach to um, how how leadership and management might view uh, and own uh, culture. Right. So, which first of all, can you help us understand what's the difference between the two, uh, and which paths yeah. should leaders uh, ultimately choose in the way they manage culture? So, or, organic is that you basically just let it flow. It, it is that you trust the process to take its shape. You trust people to come together and figure out ways of working that work the best for the people. Um, and as long as business is fine. Why, why bother? Because culture is typically not something that you need to worry about if business is fine. If, if I take an example, um, which is public, so Google always was kind of like the mantra of the Google culture code and, and even Netflix, the Netflix culture code. And then fast forward to about, I think, two, three years ago, when Google started having a lot of issues with toxic cultures and you had employee protests, economy went down, advertising revenue went down. So stress came up. And that's when we found out that that was what, that what was written in the culture manual might not have actually necessarily been the reality or with the Netflix culture code and all of the protests and then et cetera, disruption that took place when also the subscription amount went down real the real culture of an organization comes out when the proverbial stuff hits the fan that's when you realize what is our culture really about and therefore if you just got a lot of money you got a lot of investment your business landscape looks very rosy culture is organic you don't need to worry about it you've got enough money to pay people off this is me being very cynical um so it's a choice some organizations are lucky enough that they're able to afford this the strategic approach to culture however is to really understand what is the actual way that we work inside this organization to which extent is that actual way supporting the way we need to work, given the context in which we operate, given the strategy that we have? And to which extent is that in sync with what people would like to be doing? And that also brings us to, to this element of, of, of change. When we're changing in a direction that is in line with what our strategy requires from us and the emotional preferences of people, fantastic. Because you're moving in a direction that people gut-wise already want. However, if it's the other way around, you're changing in a direction that people don't want, you might want to ask yourself the question, can I afford to lose these people? Because if you can't, you might want to pay a little bit more attention to what drives people to give their best at the organization, because uh, that is tend to be a bit harder to change than the strategy. 
Um, so coming back to the original question, so organic is when you just let things flow and you trust things to be going the way that they are going. Strategic is that you actively design consistency throughout these different layers within an organization so that the beliefs that you have as an owner, as a management team are backed up by the systems and the processes and the procedures and the symbols that you have in place. Mm. So that's where leaders really kind of pull up their sleeves and say, we are going to be a part of this and we are not only going to uh, own a part of the company and not own the culture. So we are also an equal contributor and, and owner when it comes to shaping the culture. And that's that's essentially the active approach that you're alluding to here. Um, yeah. yeah, which makes sense. Um, and I think it's also a perfect opportunity for us to talk a little bit, Egbert, about, uh, we've been speaking about the role that managers, leaders, and the management overall has to play and why it's important to own this, um, right? But, but what about employees, people down the line? Um, how is it that uh, you know, employees can play a more active role um, in in shaping culture. Do they do it organically, or what's what's the role really that employees play um, when it comes to culture? I think first of all, it starts with understanding and taking an active interest in what is the impact that my particular role has on the larger whole of the company. And I must admit, I'm a bit more conservative from that perspective of indicating that it's not a like asking yourself the question, not what can the company mean for me, but what can I mean for the company or the organization? Um, there, there's a lot of reflection about there's this war on talent and it's it's an, a job seekers market. But let's be honest, in the end, an organization exists to make a impact, and that impact can be financial, so share value, uh, shareholder value. It can be social, social impact. And as an employee, I think employees themselves, just as well as leaders, need to take an ownership of the sense of being honest with themselves with regards to why am I working here? Mm. Am I working here to get my paycheck? And there's nothing wrong with that. And many people don't even have a choice to do anything but that. Then basically do your job, um, but also don't cause a fuss. Because if you're not an owner of a company, then I don't think that that is necessarily the the place. Uh, but again, I said, I'm a bit conservative in that end. The other way around is that if you're there because you support the cause of the purpose of why an organization exists. So I think it's also for organizations to be really honest. And this starts at the top. And it requires consistency in management teams, which is unfortunately very often lacking, which is what is our purpose? Why are we here? Are we here to just make money? And again, that is fine if that is your choice, but then don't fool employees into thinking that they're there to support nature or biodiversity or whatever it is that a company claims to be supporting. Because people are adult enough to make their own decisions. And I think that, that again, so it goes to both ends. It's honesty on an ownership group on a management level. What is the purpose of our organizations? Why do we exist? And then making that consistent throughout of, throughout all the practices inside an organization Ending up in recruitment in terms of, look, we like making money. Do you want to join us? Or we like to support biodiversity. Do you want to join us? 
Um, I think that is where both sides, stakeholders, need to be basically taking ownership in terms of being under, like aware of why am I choosing to work here? Why am I choosing to give my time, again, because it is scarce, to this particular purpose? And if that is no longer aligned, take ownership and leave um, if it's no longer aligned. Interesting. So uh, you're again looking at it from two lenses is that first the organization needs to decide the purpose and articulate that very clearly. And then the employees need to figure out if, if that's the purpose that they align to. Um, right. And it has to be real purpose. It, it can't be something that's just put on the wall. Um, employees need to be able to feel it and to be able to contribute uh, to it. And that's where uh, leaders can really enlist their people and say that, hey, come and join us to be able to do this together, um, instead of saying we just exist purely for economic reasons or or, or things like that. And I mean, it's it's, it's probably easier in, in smaller organizations where people know each other a little bit better than in larger organizations. Mm. But that also goes back to the question with regards to how large should organizations really become? Yeah. Um, and is the purpose that has been devised by a founding family or owner group, is that still the purpose? And and this also goes back to, to executive recruitment. Are you bringing in people that lead with purpose? Or are you people bringing in people that lead just because they can maximize their bonuses? Mm. Uh, and I think this is where we've seen in, in a lot of countries, a lot of upheaval in the sense of a complete break down of of alignment on on the sense of purpose um and, and it also goes back to one of the other topics that i trust we'll talk about which is which is change and and it, it's like for example acquisition when companies organizations buy other organizations or units are merged is the sense of purpose still the same and prior to an acquisition and integration integration or merger to which extent do we let ourselves be informed with regards to not just what do we say the sense of purpose is, but actually measuring, do we have a similar sense of purpose before we start working together? Because otherwise people will give their best to what they believe is the purpose, only for others to realize or think that, hey, you're wasting time, not taking into account that people are thinking about something completely different. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I uh, I was alluding again to the fact that uh, you know change. I think you, you kind of brought that up in the last uh, point that you made. Let's go a little deeper into that. I think um, while mergers and acquisitions are one form of change that organizations um, uh, you know experience, and not all of them do, um, there is also organic change that happens, uh, right? In the sense that the market might change, the economy shifts, mm -hmm. the talent market changes. I mean, we are we are in a constant change of flux. So in that environment, um, right? And leaders once they've identified that, hey, we need now. Um, look at evolving our culture from where it is to uh, a, an optimal culture to where we want to go, um, right? So where where do they start? Where do leaders and uh, you know organizations really start when they want to change their culture? Yeah, I think the most important step is to first make sure that the management team is actually aligned on this, because more often than not, they're not. So that's step number one, consistency and alignment within a management team mm. and conscious choices, which is this is the direction that we go. Are you on or not? If not, you're out. 
because that is that sense of ownership that that leaders have to show at least in my book um, you have no places in no place in an executive management team if you are not willing to step in line with what the rest of the management team says is going to be the direction so there's there's space for discussion and then there's time to to fall in line again sense of pride in ownership basically either you're with a decision or then you take the honor and you leave um step one consistency step two understand is the organization ready for change and that often gets conflicted with people not willing to change when somebody is not ready to change it doesn't mean that they're unwilling to change it just means that and this is where i i connected back to to uh, a known speaker on this topic simon sinek who has his circle of why what and how when people are not ready for change it can be that they don't understand why why do we need to change it can be connected to not necessarily understanding on what are we going to change or then lastly it can be connected to not understanding on how do we go about changing this so post that executive team consistency, them themselves also understanding what does this mean for their own behavior as leaders walking the talk, it is an ability to communicate these three items down the line, which is about this is why we're changing, this is what we're going to change, and this is how we're going to go about changing that what we're going to change. And this is something that we often find is that it could be that there's not enough trust inside an organization. Well, then you first need to address that. Rebuild the trust. And there are ways and techniques to do that. It, it could be that there's too much anxiety. And that's why sometimes it's also better that when times are anxious, it's better to then just basically cut rigorously, literally cut 30, 40% of your workforce and just be done with it for a couple of years, as opposed to what you unfortunately see way too often, which is that organizations are in an eternal loop of reorganizations. They basically go through reorganizations like a cup of coffee per day. Like every year there's another reorganization. It basically meant that they haven't fought deep enough and didn't dare to take tough enough decisions to just take a hard decision live with it and then also be done with it for a few years mm. otherwise you're creating a fear culture there's too much anxiety okay which unit is going to be next in the reorganization uh, and that will stop anything that you try to do as as an organization very interesting so be be honest to whatever it is that you want to do and uh, and go ahead and do it vis-a-vis deedly dallying and uh, you know having uh, having no sense of direction clearly essentially is what you're saying um, yes. right and um yeah that's that's great um the other thing i want to touch upon egbert is um you know you've uh, uh, and because i've i've worked on some of this with you as well uh, i really like this concept of uh, direct change versus indirect change in the way that we think about change right mm-hmm. which i think is is a very powerful lever uh, if i can ask you to uh, talk or unpack that a little bit for us which is yeah. um, right so what's what's the direct change approach approach to change and what's the indirect way of um, looking at change especially in the context of culture yeah 
So let, let's take something that most white collar job uh, workers can relate to, which is meetings. Um, and let's say a, a general complaint throughout pretty much most organizations, which is that we spend way too much time in meetings. Now, I can, as a leader, as a boss, as a manager, I can say this to people that, hey, we're spending way too much time on meetings. And from now on, it has to be within 30 minutes and then you're done. That is thinking that that such a direct statement will impact people's behavior. Mm. And I mean, it might. We can never say never. But what is more likely to happen or work, especially in the physical environment, virtual obviously is slightly different, physical environment is just take the tables away, take the chairs away, put a clock on a wall, make reserving meeting rooms maxed out at 30 minutes. These are all indirect nudges to indicate to people that, hey, meetings need to be shorter. When you tell people to change their behavior for very many people, it tends to react in an anti-reaction, which is the hell I am. Why would I need to? What am I doing wrong? Whereas if you do it in an indirect way and you have connect certain consequences to continuing your old ways or you connect incentives to doing it in another way, it's a much more effective way for people to change their behavior on the long run. Mm. Because for, for most people, and that's what a lot of people forget, for most people, getting negative feedback, being told that you need to change something is not easy. It's not easy to give. It's not easy to receive. So an indirect way, and this is a source that managers control because they control the budget, they control the physical space, Um they can nudge people. Like bonuses are no longer given for individual performance, only team performance. Mm. So what am I saying? Work together. Except that I'm not saying it. I'm showing it. So that's what we mean with indirect change. It's basically indicating that people need to change without necessarily being too explicit about it because that would only invite a, con a counter reaction. Sure. Sure. That's a great way of putting it in a framework and, and to think about it um, from a change lever perspective for an organization. So thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so uh, last few questions for you, uh, Egbert, is uh, one, you know, because again, you've been doing this for a while. What are some of the biggest myths that you've encountered about about culture? Right. And what, what do you think can be done to overcome them? That there is a best culture. Mm. This this fallacy of thinking that organizations can copy the Google culture or the Netflix culture, um, their context is different. So why should we want to? Uh, different owners, different founders, different economical philosophy, different business environments. So culture cannot be copied. So best practice culture that 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 I would say is a myth. Mm. Um, another myth is, is that you should let culture be a grassroots movement. It's and of course that is that is partially also a reflection of beliefs, and in this case, it's my belief mm. is that 
culture needs to be set and lived from the top down because that is the benchmark that people will be looking at. And if the top doesn't own it, it ain't going to happen. Another myth is that you can change the culture of an organization by creating a new culture handbook. Because unless you change the systems, the processes, the structures, promotion criteria, uh, learning criteria, recruitment criteria, people will constantly be pulled back to the past. So culture change, it has to start with a complete redesign of how are all these layers connected inside an organization. And that requires resources. It doesn't need to be consultants, but it it has to be basically uh, internally owned by an organization. I'd say another myth is that company culture will trump national culture. I mean, especially um, American organizations are really, really good at creating what we would call consistent corporate cultures. There's a there's a lot of, well, you could call it learning or indoctrination taking place in the first three months of people being onboarded. And this is our way. This is the employee manual. And it'll work. It, it, it's in that sense offers people a good, quick way to onboard. Again, American philosophy, time to market. But after a year or two, three, people will start being in like a disconnect with their own national cultural value preferences. And that's when you will start seeing a turnover. And I mean, it's not a secret. If you look at the retention figures for American companies with, let's say, European or Japanese companies, the average employment tenure in American organizations is four years. In Europe, it's 8 to 12, and in Japan, it's 12 plus. And this is literally the result of a cultural disconnect. Perhaps labor market policies might have something to do with it. But then again, you've got higher and fire practices in other countries as well, not just the US. Uh, so that's not the only excuse. It is basically a, a consequence of a misalignment between what companies say they do and how people experience that. And after the rosy period, then people will see that the grass is greener on the other side and they'll, they'll leave. So that would be another myth, which is that you can build a strong enough corporate culture to overcome national cultural programming. And my statement is, well, good luck trying. You you can't outcode, outprogram 15 years of social coding that people have experienced by the way they've been raised by their parents and educated by their schools. It's just not possible. Sure. Sure. And that's much more deeply ingrained. Um, Although we might spend a lot of time at work, uh, these values are more closer to us, uh, I suppose, and therefore it's that much more difficult to let go. Um, And and that's not something that we can change as easily. Um, Well, I mean, you can connect it. You can connect this, for example, to India. I mean, like if you're working in an organization where you're really made enthusiastic about being very active, very vocal towards your superiors, but then you go back home and you've got your parents, your in-laws, you've got your aunts, uncles, nephews, cousins, and they all think, oh, you're so disrespectful for publicly disobeying your father or your mother. 
I mean, there's only that much pressure that people can take. And this is what I mean with what we do at work and how it might or might not connect with what we are expected to be showing in public life. Um, even in, let's just put it this way, in most countries, people spend more time in the social environment than they do at work. So that pressure will therefore be higher. Yeah. Um, so last question for you before I let you go, Egbert, is um, what new ideas, methodologies uh, have emerged in this in this field that's that's really exciting according to you, which is which is where you see this entire conversation about culture taking root um, even more yeah. strongly in the future. Um, so uh, what is it that you have seen that we should be looking out for? I would say two, two, three very exciting fields that we are working on is one is which is one is connected to people's adaptability to work across cultures and that we can actually nowadays measure that so we can anticipate what is the likely risk that somebody will break down because of a cultural disconnect and that's really really nice because both on an emotional and an economical level the amount of call it waste emotional or economical waste connected to um, expatriation is humongous. Mm. It's like 40% of expert assignments fail. That's massive if you know that the average expert assignment costs the company about a million in terms of sourcing and allocation, relocation, et cetera. Um, that's a massive waste. So that that's one very exciting field. Second field is connected to the way we go about measuring culture. So like many analytics companies, we use surveys. We can also do interviews, but surveys are a more economical way and a bit more reliable in terms of predictability of results. Um, we nowadays also look at the way people use language inside organizations. So if you think about assessing a corporate culture and not just only using either interviews or surveys, but also looking at text analytics or semiotics, what are people writing about? What is the context in which they write about it? Uh, on platforms like Slack or Jammer or Teams nowadays, I guess, uh, or on the website or an employee newsletter that we can extract in which direction is a corporate culture moving um, is, is quite an interesting field uh, because it allows you to do much more pulse type of assessments in terms of is the communication tonality is moving in a direction that you want to steer your organization. So that's a very fascinating field. And then the third field, I'd say, is related to a topic which nowadays pops up more. It's psychological safety. Um, and, and not necessarily only from a managerial point of view, but from an organizational culture point of view, connected to, in general, are the trends inside an organizational part of it supportive of creating a psychologically safe environment, meaning there is enough trust and there's also enough accountability. Um, because one of the interesting fields, for example, is that the more consultative an organization is, the more trust there is, but the less accountability. Mm. And that therefore actually brings the overall level of psychological safety down which people would not necessarily anticipate. So those are some very interesting research fields where we're starting to see some results uh, in terms of the data that we collect. Wonderful. Um, this has been truly fascinating, uh, Egbert. Thanks for spending the time with us, uh, with me uh, on this podcast. 
more than welcome. It was an absolute pleasure. Looking forward to future discussions. The legacy of the late Professor Geert Hofstede has deeply influenced Egbert's line of work. My most interesting takeaways from this conversation were the interplay between national and organizational cultures, why purpose matters both at an individual and organizational level, and how the two intersect, the difference between an organic and an active approach to managing culture, and the myths of organizational culture. It was also interesting to note how natural language processing techniques or uh, semiotic techniques, as Egbert put it, will transform the way we will measure, interpret and work towards building organizational cultures. Until next time, I hope this episode helps you play an active role in shaping a meaningful, purposeful, productive culture for your colleagues at your workplace.